0: Welcome to Success The Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our Wealth Advisory Practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor. So be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Aaron Wool, welcome to Success at Last. Excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I have the benefit of sharing a wall, basically, with you back in the olden days when being in an office meant you actually were physically in an office. Not that way anymore, but love having you on the team. But let's introduce you to the the listeners. So you're a CPA now, senior manager, senior tax manager at the firm today. But talk to me kind of about the origin story. Kind of where did you grow up, and how did you find public accounting?
1: Yeah, I mean originally from California, we moved up to Oregon, went to U of O with the intention of doing sports marketing, working for Nike. And I was very involved and very active, a lot of marketing programs and clubs. But you know, ultimately, uh, after taking other business classes that you're required to take, and also being in a room full of marketing people, of the amount of people that wanted to work for Nike, found that maybe my that wasn't my path. So I chose to be in an accounting and once you pick a path, you start pushing forward and, and and here's where you end up. You get your license and and you pick something you're interested in in that field. So I've I've been very active in working in estate planning, primarily post mortem when someone passes away, but you know, also in planning for for clients and understanding what the implications are of certain planning methodologies are. So it's been fun and it's a different arena than people are used to talking about when it comes to taxes. People usually talk about income taxes and I had the pleasure of introducing some other things to consider as well. So it's been good for me, and it's been good for helping clients and having that kind of depth.
0: One of the things that immediately jumped out to me about you was kind of this infinite learning, a deep desire to continue to learn. And as the laws have continued to evolve and change, so have the planning opportunities. But you seem to do a good job keeping up on it. I guess, candidly, I'm always curious where people find that information. So what, what do you do professionally to stay on top of all the changing rules and regs and, and then candidly, the planning opportunities that come of that?
1: With today's data and technology, there's always a lot of information available at our fingertips, generally pretty broad and requires over time to continue to invest, in, invest uh, research and figuring out how that applies to your clients and ultimately taxpayers. You know, generally, our firm does a a very, very good job of providing information, disseminating that throughout the office. Personally, um, for personal experience, once you kind of compound your learning and understand more of what some of these tax information means, we we kind of formulate that into our own and kind of weave that into our own planning process. It's always intriguing of what else you can find in other ways to be creative. And being creative is something I passionately like to be. I find that taxes are not black and white we like to find ways that we can modify facts or create facts that would ultimately help our position of, of going one direction or the other one fact can change an entire plan and so we want to make sure that we have all the information we have to ultimately figure things out but you have to be progressive in order to have a good plan you can't rely on one aspect you have to think about how this applies in all respects to a client's plan that's what makes planning fun that's what makes being a public accounting fund. Preparing returns is great. And ultimately, we love being accurate. And that's part of being an accountant, but also helping clients be affluent and understand more about what they can and can't do or better ways to do it, perhaps, is the best part of what we do.
0: So one of the things I was looking forward to talking to you about today was the difference between tactical tax planning and strategic tax planning. And I've come to think of that maybe in simple terms, that kind of tactical tax planning might be minimizing the taxes one pays in a particular year. Strategic tax planning, we zoom out, we look at really what the client is attempting to accomplish, ultimately the destination of each dollar, when it's finally spent or consumed, where that is or who that is, in minimizing the cumulative lifetime expenses, tax expenses that that balance sheet or those assets are exposed to. And you seem to do a really nice job of doing that. I've found that one of the things that hinders the ability to strategic tax plan is people really don't have a plan. It's generally kind of opportunistically growing their business and accumulating wealth, but not really wanting to sit down and put together a path forward because creating a plan might feel restrictive, might feel confined. Do you find that a lot of people have challenges kind of defining the destination of where they're trying to go? Yeah,
1: it's, you have your, your mixed bag of clients that are proactive versus clients that are reactive. And some clients ultimately have more bandwidth to be proactive than others. And that kind of helps with what you're able to provide and how that plan gets formulated. Some clients have the optics to look at one year. Some clients have the ability to work, look beyond that. And ultimately, what we're asked to do is help quantify a decision and help them understand the decisions in a numbers-oriented way. But also try to take it beyond that where possible. We really try very hard to go beyond taxes where possible, and ultimately, you know, exemplify that we have a really high-level understanding of a lot of the issues that our clients are considering beyond just this is your this is your tax bill, and this is your consideration. It's it's family-oriented it's more ingrained, it's understanding more of a holistic uh, approach to how we look at planning. So overall, it's something, you know, we have to, again, look beyond taxes and beyond the numbers.
0: Hey, so Aaron, well, let's unpack this a little bit qualitatively and quantitatively. We'll color this in. So when we define a destination, when we help a client define a destination, we know where they are today, we can kind of build a balance sheet and an income statement, we can define where they're going. But but the destination really of almost any dollar is you can spend it, you can give it to your children, you can give it to charities, and depending upon that mix determines how much the government is going to get. So really, there's only four destinations for any dollars. Spend it, give it to heirs, give it to charity, and that mix determines how much the government gets. So let's, determ- let's say just hypothetically, then somebody determines, I want my kids to have some basic needs met. Enough where they can do anything, but not so much they can do nothing, kind of that famous Warren Buffett quote. Then the difference goes to charity. So now this family is kind of philanthropically inclined. What does that do from a planning perspective in terms of when a client calls and says, hey, what sort of tax ideas do you have? How's that plan different than just getting as much dollars to to heirs as possible?
1: Yeah, I think with any planning, keeping the end in mind, what the end goal is in mind where a client perhaps is giving more to charity at death. Some consideration we would, we would apply to that is, is what about charity during life to maximize ultimately what will go to charity by saving on income taxes. I think it's knowing that information we are able to apply more methodologies to help a client understand why or why they may want to do one thing or another. Maybe why would they want to invest in this particular asset, perhaps consider what we're ultimately investing for the consideration is really impacted by knowing that coming up with strategies for clients to save and maximize their annual exclusion or maximize their exemption, um, which are, you know, more terminology based, but understanding that it's something we don't have to weigh as heavily when we're, when we know that a client is giving so much to charity and minimally or just enough to non-charity beneficiaries or non-spouse beneficiaries. It's just knowing that information. If you didn't know that, I'm going to provide a lot more information to the client that may not be applicable or needed in, in light of knowing what, what that strategy is. Personally, it's it's something that you always kind of wonder what, what is appropriate to give to a family member. And I think these are, these are always going to be personal decisions. So we're, we're just kind of formulating a plan based on their personal feelings and what they want to do. So it's important to know.
0: Yeah. When a client determines that Charity is going to play a significant component of their overall plan. There are opportunities to position assets within the overall family's balance sheet in an advantaged way, right? Where we reduce income taxes today, maybe locate future high-growth assets in the right spot, even generationally. You've been doing this now long enough that you've seen a variety of different tax regimes. Have you ever seen a more planning-friendly moment in time relative to interest rates and and exemption limits and discounting? I mean, it's a pretty favorable fact pattern, but contextually, how do you think it stacks up against other moments in time?
1: Very unique. And again, it's, the question is based off of knowing what a client would want to do. But in terms of interest rates and planning opportunities, this is once in a lifetime. You know, I think a lot of banks are going to be wondering with just the interest rates being as low as they are, whether or not these loans are serviceable, the interest rates people are getting, let alone what the IRS rates are, which are substantially lower, I think that it, obviously it's one of those things that we know clients that would be interested in having this information, and we had to target market those clients to understand that this is an opportunity that maybe this would require refinancing a note with a family member or other considerations with gifting, like you said. I really appreciate when we can identify a client that wasn't necessarily part of the target market, but may have been interested in that type of planning. That's always kind of powerful and impactful for for me to help a client and give them some more depth and scope of information that maybe they weren't as as interested or, or aware of. And so we always try to adapt and be flexible for what clients you know may or may not know with the current with the current tax climate or that even the current economic environment, client reaches out to me and says, well, I was going to gift this particular asset, but due to COVID, it's something that's substantially decreased in value. Maybe it's not a good thing to gift. I like to offer a different perspective and maybe this is a good thing to gift because we're not going to use much of our exemptions. And so we're trying to give different point of views, not to say this is right or wrong, but just to give that perspective of why you would consider one thing or another. Again, qualitative, just the information alone, quantitative, putting.
0: When I have had the opportunity to travel abroad, language isn't one of those things that I'm gifted at. I took four years of Spanish in high school, good enough to, to get passing grades, but never good enough to become a true asset. But when you're in a different country and you hear different, a different language that you don't understand, it's interesting how vulnerable you feel. And sometimes I think that the planning language can be a little bit like that. It's almost like we just click into a kind of a financial lease planning language of alphabet soup of different types of trusts, idgits and grats and islets. And it's it's this language that is not very accessible. And so I thought kind of for fun, you could maybe think of a, a planning story from the last year, where maybe the fact pattern was able to take advantage of current asset prices being depressed because of COVID, discounting that is allowed because of current planning laws, low interest rates, so maybe the applicable federal funds rate is lower. So, I mean, rather than talking about the alphabet soup of trusts, just kind of a, a general story of like, wow, we did some really good work for that client, kind of what what that looked like through the process.
1: There would be a number of, of clients that would come to mind, one in particular where it really was beyond taxes. It's always interesting and and more convoluted when you have a family business and maybe one child is interested and one child is not, or other children are not. And you're trying to balance out what is the family would deem to be fair, but coordinate that with succession of the business. And when we're going through a planning process, we need to consider more than just this saved you much much in, in estate taxes, this saved you much, this much in income taxes. What is the, the strategy to do that? And as we talked before, it's, it's not usually a client that's reactive that's going to get that type of benefit. Here in, in this particular case, we were able to work with a client and the family and come up with a scenario where we could balance things out and keep things as fair as possible economically. And maybe that's different from different perspectives, but ultimately nobody felt that they were wrong in this scenario. Often when someone passes away, mom or dad may not have communicated what their intentions were, why they chose one particular scenario or not. And we want to make sure that clients are communicating so they can get ahead of this so that they do pass away, that their family doesn't feel like mom or dad didn't appreciate me as much as the child that perhaps is receiving the business or is going to be succeeding in the business. So that's ones that we are able to help out with a lot because we can provide that kind of depth that it gives them a lot of information to how do we do that? And how do we strategize that?
0: So you brought up a couple of things. I, w- I want to circle back on one right here out of the gate. So if expectations minus reality equals disappointment, when somebody passes away and the assets gets distributed, disappointment is often an emotion that the heirs feel. So if that is expectations minus reality, really the variable there is expectations. So in your professional experience, what have people done well, I guess, to educate, inform and ultimately manage expectations of heirs so that everyone is on the same page? So you minimize that disappointment? Because I think there's nothing more tragic than a, a matriarch or patriarch that stewards family assets for generation, like for a generation, and then siblings or heirs disagree and then you end up in a state litigation and really attorneys are the only ones that win in, in that setting, which was probably not the goal of the wealth creation in the first place. I can tell you
1: the experiences, it would take longer than this podcast to, to share the, the spectrums that we've seen of clients who were who maybe did nothing or maybe partially did it, but partially did not. And the complications that can create, I call those the war stories. Clients that are, are more proactive, are ones that are engaging on an annual basis of figuring out what it is they can do in order to equalize things. And how they communicate is not just, hey, you're going to get this much, you're going to get this much, you're going to get this much. It's beyond that. It's communicating what do you want and how, how do you feel about this ahead of time to mitigate some of those different expectations that a beneficiary may have. It's something that parents need to, if they can communicate with the child, or with a spouse, particularly if it's a blended family, of, of what the expectations are, what they can do, they can ask them how they feel about it. And sometimes that kind of feedback, since the person's not gonna be around anymore, is important to understand of what's important to the heirs and how they can make this a lot more feasible. Again, the economics of a business succession versus balancing the portfolio of, of assets to the other beneficiaries isn't just economics, it's perception of what is fair. like like you mentioned. So I get how we do that is in a number of different ways that it's much more granular of how we can quantify what's fair. Sometimes it's based off of what the tax implications would be of receiving one asset. Sometimes it's liquidity. Sometimes it's based on what their particular child's particular, if they have creditor issues or anything of that nature. So I, I kind of leave that to more thought than actually saying this is exactly what we do more thought we provide into that of, of different scenarios and how that can be executed.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. There's a difference between a facilitated process and a prescriptive process. And something like what is fair isn't necessarily always equal. So it can't be a prescriptive process. Each family is going to be unique because each set of values is going to be unique. The balance sheet's going to be unique. But having a thought partner to explore your options of if equal is not fair and fair is not equal, how do we divvy this balance sheet up in a way that, that honors our, our values in a way that would be equitable? It's a good point. It's so challenging. I will
1: say when you have illiquid assets like a business, for example, or a piece of property or multiple pieces of property where one particular family member will succeed, these are not easy things to go through and it requires thought. Law changes impact those thoughts. Uh, with new president coming in, there could be new law changes, and that impacts the plans. And so it's not something that we set it and forget it. It's something that we try to continue to work with clients and provide that depth and scope and information to consider if we're still on the right path.
0: Aaron, one of the things that I've observed, I think it was Albert Einstein that declared compound interest to be the eighth wonder of the world. And it's a fun quote, but there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, he was observing that the human brain is a lot better at adding up incremental growth, you know, linear growth, eight plus eight plus eight plus eight plus eight is a lot, a lot easier to calculate than eight times, eight times eight times eight times eight times eight. So a lot of the time we'll be dealing with a client, you know, in their 40s or 50s, and they, they might have a taxable estate they might not necessarily understand the urgency in which they should begin addressing it today because the benefit is then going to be compounded for you know actuarially like 35 plus years and so if we locate growth in its desired destination today and then let compound interest work for it for years to come the opportunity to minimize lifetime cumulative taxes is is exponential in that setting so is it the rule of 72 72 divided by the rate of return is how long it takes an asset to double. So in that scenario, like if your balance sheet is growing at about 7%, it takes roughly 10 years for your balance sheet to double. And and then again, another 10 years. And so talk to me about the opportunities that exist in locating growth outside of one's estate and then allowing that compound interest to occur for another three or four decades.
1: Well, yeah, and towards the end of this year, I think is, is viewed as a very unique opportunity to do that. As you mentioned before, there's some planning opportunities that we've been working with clients to help them with some of those considerations. When clients are trying to locate growth, what they need to understand is, this isn't always that you're losing something, you're just maybe not keeping the appreciation in your taxable estate. We work with clients and trying to understand what the benefits are of perhaps gifting, funding the trust, Perhaps there could be other, other loans, things they can do now that would lower the amount of their taxable estate or also compound in effect, lower their income taxes. One challenge I, I do always see with the clients of kind of a hurdle to get over is not just funding a trust. Um, the fact that trust may be irrevocable and you can't change it, but clients are always very concerned of is, you know, how much money do I need? What is my numbers is, is a very popular question slash statement. And, you know, we're working with clients that are, are planning for 30 to 35 years. So understanding of what is it they want, what is they want family, or what does that balance described between going to the government, going to charity, going to spouse, or going to another family member look like. And in conjunction with that, their overall cash flow of what they and they perceive that they need and want. And balance that balancing act requires a lot of analysis, usually a lot of communication because it's, it's going to be different from what they're used to slightly to a certain degree or somewhat some of the same depending on what kind of planning they've done previously. So we're working with clients of trying to quantify what a decision would be, and help them understand this is what you can do in these scenarios in order to have an estate tax savings. And like you said, there's alphabet soup of things you can do. Why you may choose one or the others is a customized decision. And We have a lot of clients that are, are very interested at this point in time to maximize an estate tax exemption that may or may not may go down. And we know currently it's going to go down after 2025. It may go down sooner in light of a a presidential change. And so clients are trying to capture permanent tax savings. That's the key, is if it goes down and never goes back up, is this a permanent savings I can provide for future heirs, whether that's a person or organization? People are usually just trying to balance it in terms of that consideration of whether or not they, they, how much, how little they have to give the government. And that's just the reality of it is, is it's, it's very tax motive. There's a lot of tax motivation for making these decisions because of how much their balance sheet will go one way or the other.
0: Aaron here in Oregon, clients are subject to a 9.9% income tax rate. We don't have a capital gains rate. So everything is taxed 9.9%. And then the estate tax kicks in at there's an, the exemption is a million dollars per person. Right, the estate tax kicks in relatively early, and you know, I guess between a retirement account and a paid-off home, it doesn't take much. More people are subject to the Oregon estate tax than what they might initially think. So the conversations around changing one's residency seems to be a question that we we receive a lot. I guess to what extent do you field that question? How do you talk to people about that question? And then in practice, how many people actually use their residency like, to impact an overall tax plan? I think this goes
1: back to the retirement plan. What's your number? How much of the savings will it provide by moving? Is it possible to move and avoid it entirely? Sometimes the answer is no. It comes up a lot. And I would say when we're going through a, a, a new state plan with a client, residency and domicile is going to be a big part of that. How is that going to impact your life? Is there non-tax reasons that maybe they wouldn't want to move away? I find with parents and perhaps they're moving into being grandparents, it would be very hard to be far away from their grandchildren, which may, may impact their decision. Like I said, there's non-tax reasons for doing things, but quantifying a decision, if it's gonna save them millions of dollars to move from Oregon, it's usually not a hard decision, as hard of a decision, I should say, for them to at least consider whether or not another state would make more sense but you know, I, I think I find more often than not this it depends on what parents, family members think is fair or they feel like they need to make sure that their family has. And that just depends on their portfolio. I think your your net worth of your client is going to be dependent upon whether or not it makes sense and whether it should be part of the consideration. A client's yeah, a couple that's worth two to three million dollars. This wouldn't even come up. It's not worth it. Client that's 10, 20, $100 million, those numbers, you start getting to those types of figures and you say, you know what? It's going to save me a very significant amount of money to not be an Oregon resident. And that may change some of your consideration. So I think it's, it's always an interesting dynamic. And then also, you know, the question becomes is where would what, what I move that would still be appropriate, or at least I'd feel comfortable. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's some soul-searching questions, and I think that it's interesting for clients to, to go through that analysis. We usually will provide them a map of the United States and some of the, the more friendly states the versus the unfriendly states, and maybe some of the different considerations they can look into, do their own due diligence as well. But and then each state has some form of tax, and the, that particular tax will weigh whether or not it's ultimately a, a net benefit to move out of Oregon.
0: Yeah, When we build financial plans for clients, we take them through a facilitated process where we look at different categories of where money shows up in their life, work and career, family and key relationships, interests and causes, health and wellness. And in that process, we discover vision values and goals and concerns. And even though we talk often about state residency, and it might be a consideration, people talk about changing states for weather as much as they seem to talk about it for taxes and, you know, you're still subject to federal taxes, which is always greater than your state taxes. And to your point, every state has its own way of collecting revenue. And so I find myself cautioning people to allow the tax tail to wag the dog. There's a lot of other things that are going to influence the decision. And if you're trying to have kind of a value centered, goal-driven plan, You want to factor in a variety of different things, and tax expense management is merely a component of the overall strategy.
1: Yeah, it really does become again. Which is your balancing act? Is it the tax? You know, what's really pushing, what's tilting the scale one way or the other? Like I said, the numbers people come up with with what the savings might be would really be the the largest motivating factor because you know they don't want to necessarily move away from their family. You know and again even even where there, there could be substantial savings of doing it uh, I find clients often won't do it just because the family is, is they, they want to consider other options you know just to be closer to family which you can understand
0: I for sure can understand that yeah another simple list is you know money can get you things experiences and impact and generally speaking we want to share those with our family with our parents with our kids with our friends and Sure, living in a different area might save you some some dollars, but if it cheats you of experiences and impact with the people that you care about, that's probably a bad trade. Yeah,
1: it's surprising when you tell a client you can save millions and they won't do it, and you understand why. It's families families above all. So it's it's just a unique and unique thing to see and gratifying just to see that the taxes don't wag the dog.
0: Yeah. Well, on that note, let me transition then to. You personally, so you said family's everything, and and I agree. Your family's continuing to evolve and change. Talk to me about that.
1: Well, we have a 15 month old daughter, and she's walking, and she's now being cognizant of of what a toy means and what receiving that for Christmas. Although she doesn't know what Santa Claus means yet, she was quite enamored with seeing that she got a bunch of gifts.
0: Yeah, she she thinks she might be a fan.
1: Yeah, she, this could be a good thing. I'm, I'm not sure if she understands that. It's not every day, but (laughs) she's playing with all the toys and learning words. And, you know, she's, she's all over the place. So we're, she's keeping her.
0: So do you, do you think having a kid now and becoming a father has impacted you as an advisor and, and maybe understanding some of the conversations that you're having with clients?
1: It definitely changes perspective. Uh, in terms of you know annual planning, what I'm focused on is something that always comes up in discussions. We want clients to understand that there's different things that we can relate to, and that helps us connect on a different level with clients. When you have children the same age, or perhaps you've been, they've been through a life cycle of seeing children, the conversation comes up all the time, well, what do you do? <laughs> and I think it's, it's important to give that, you know, beyond just I have the experience with other clients. And this is how we apply planning versus this is what I do, you know, and then this is how I approach things. I think it's, it's also applicable for estate planning because clients will get a revocable trust set up and they'll say, well, I don't know what to do what, what's the boiler template on how do I, why do I care? How does this impact me? I can give them both sides of it, you know, because of how we've set up our trust and for, for our daughter and, and how we view it and going through that as well. Also, you know, working with my wife and it's something that or we can provide much more depth and experience to and why we chose to do one thing or another. So I, again, it's, it's helpful for people to know that that experience and it's not just more on a book level. It's actually how we've applied things and why we've done it and maybe at this stage why we did it versus why we might do it differently in a different point in life.
0: Well, Aaron, as we kind of transition towards the end of the conversation, this will air in the beginning of the new year. So a lot of people will have their new year's resolutions in their lists, right in front of them, it'll be fresh, front of mind. If they were going to prioritize financial fitness going into 2021 to support and supplement their uh, their fitness goals, maybe they put on the COVID 19 and they're committed to, to taking it off. You know, I've been encouraging people to go and actually create a plan, plan in pencil, right? Because your life and the world around you will continue to change, but that's so much opportunity can be captured if we we at least guess what the future has in stores and begin to prioritize where we think these dollars will go. So there's some context to the tactical tax planning conversation. But what would you prioritize or or encourage people to contemplate for 2021 if they're prioritizing financial fitness?
1: I don't want to close the door that we haven't gotten past 2020 yet. Even I know we're close. We're still working with clients and being cognizant of A decision tree of things that may or may not transpire once we get through the january 5th election in georgia it's something that we once we have more information we want to be proactive we want to communicate and we wanted to discuss what if anything this may impact anything at all we may not know for the rest of the year so this year versus next year right now is is slated to be status quo so if we're just looking from one perspective, it, it may not be something that we would change a whole lot, but we want to be nimble should there be a change. And that's what some clients are doing right now and, and trying to make sure they're on top of things. So I think at this point in time, you know, I think the clients that are, are moving into 2021 are, are just trying to remain flexible. If they've had a life event that's happened, that's something that may be more specific to their situation. We've been communicating or other practitioners have been communicating just to give them some more clarity on what can be done. And I, I think that's a really long list of opportunities that could be done. So I would encourage anybody who's going into 2021 to hopefully already have a, a general idea of what they're gonna do right now. And unless they think there's gonna be a life event that may change things. Life event, someone passing away, parent, you know, knowing that someone may, is terminally ill, perhaps there's a business sale or an asset sale, perhaps they're considering some charitable giving, perhaps they're considering into family. There's a lot of things that you can say that is a life event. And we just want to make sure that we have the ability to help those clients and, and, and help them with their decisions. Ultimately, that's their decision, but we help them understand what that decision means and how maybe there's some different opportunities.
0: Aaron, I don't think we can end it on a better note than that. So I just wanted to say, thank you so much for our conversation today. And thanks for the great work that you're doing for our clients here at the lab.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.